Welcome to Behind the Curtain, L.A. Opera's podcast series in which we look deeply at the creative process and explore opera's enduring themes and power to move us. As we look forward to the opening of the 2019-2020 L.A. Opera season with a new production of La Boheme, directed by the theatrical visionary Barry Kosky, we went back to the vaults for a talk about La Boheme from 2016, given by Duff Murphy. Many know Duff as the beloved host of the opera show on KUSC for 25 years, though he is actually an attorney by trade. We all agree that he is an erudite and enthusiastic world-class opera fan. La Boheme by Puccini. I almost asked the rhetorical question, what is it about this opera that brings us back time and again? It's one of those enchanting works. Uh, whenever a company puts it on, not only does it bring folks that have seen it many, many times to the opera house, but in many instances, it serves as the introduction to opera for so many of us and for so many new people. It almost, I want to say it almost didn't come about uh, in so far as when the opera, when Puccini was considering writing it, this would have been back in about seven, in 1893, his first opera, or his first successful opera, uh, Manon Lescaut, had just seen its first performance and very successful. And Puccini and his publisher, Ritacordi, were trying to find a new work. And in many ways, opera composers are, so what's the next project? What's the next project? It's almost as, what have you done for me today, rather than looking in the past? So every time a composer finishes an opera, and Puccini in particular, it was the most difficult, it is now the best opera he's ever written, and what's coming next? Uh, so it's, in a sense, this uh, psychological... Um, well, underpinning of a work is that the composer is never done. And so Puccini was that way and was looking for a new work. And he was in, an, he was in a restaurant one day and he ran into one of his old uh, colleagues, uh, Ruggiero Leoncavallo, that we know from Pagliacci. And Leoncavallo said, so, Maestro Puccini, how are you today? What are you working on? And Puccini said, well, I'm working on an opera based on Henri Mouguer's story, The Scenes of Bohème, of Bo of Bohème which was a mid-19th century French play that was about the young people in Paris and the, and the uh, existential issues that they go through. And Leon Cavallo says, gee, well, that's interesting. Didn't I give you a libretto for that about a year ago? And Puccini said, well, I, I don't really remember, but I have a couple of other librettists that I'm working with. And Leon Cavallo said, well, since you didn't want my libretto, I'm working on the opera La Boheme. To which they then got into a bit of a tussle, and Puccini said, well, we'll let the public determine which of our efforts is better. Uh, and as we all know, Leon Cavallo's opera is actually a fairly decent piece, but because it shares the same name as Puccini's uh, incredibly successful work, it really has been left to the closet of unperformed operas. Uh, Leon Cavallo and Puccini had a riff then that was hard to uh, overcome during the rest of their uh, rest of their lives. The first performance of Puccini's La Boheme uh, took place in February of, of 1896, three years to the day after Manon Lescaut was first performed. The conductor was Arturo Toscanini, all of 29 years old. 
And Toscanini had a particular way of going about rehearsing the singers. Uh, they would have rehearsals that would last six hours, if not longer, and go late into the evening. And while these days that doesn't seem to be a particularly difficult task, uh, in the late 19th century that was considered a very long rehearsal period. These scrupulous rehearsals were done, uh, Arturo Toscanini was known to be a rather, um, let's just say, um, difficult folk, uh, difficult conductor to work with. Um, so much so that the stage crew, and I like this story, the stage crew didn't want to offend the maestro, so they walked around in their stocking feet so as not to make noise during, during the rehearsals. Puccini thought Toscanini was phenomenal. Uh, he thought he was highly intelligent, extraordinary, and brought an incredible interpretation to the music. Toscanini, five weeks before the first performance of La Boheme, believe it or not, was the conductor for the first Italian performance of Wagner's Götterdämmerung in Italian in the same theater. So in this small town, relatively small town of Turin, the audience had Wagner's Götterdämmerung and they were coming to Puccini's La Boheme. And so how does one rectify those two sounds? Well, not particularly well. As a matter of fact, the critics thought that Puccini's effort uh, was, uh, was a little bit underwhelming. They had in mind his Manon Lescaut three years earlier, and they had in their ears Wagner's Götterdämmerung. And when Puccini's effervescent story of young people in Paris in 1830 came along, they thought, thought something got left behind. Well, the audience didn't feel that way. They were ex extremely excited and exuberant, and the next 22 performances at the same house were sold out immediately. So while there was some difficulty with respect to the critics figuring out what was going on, there was absolutely no doubt in the minds of the opera audience. Interesting also is that Puccini worked with two librettists, two Italian authors and poets that were well regarded in Italy or in the Italian Republic at that time. Uh, Luigi Illica created the synopsis, the story, and Giuseppe Giacosa wrote the actual words to the libretto. And of course, they'd have to be approved by Puccini. Well, similar to many, he was a bit of a taskmaster and he didn't like what they came up with and would often ask for revisions. The fourth act was, in fact, rewritten four different times, and it's considered that the whole opera went through about ten different versions before Puccini was able to accept it and start composing, which only took about eight months. But Luigi Illica and Giuseppe Giacosa said that they would absolutely not work with Puccini ever again. Well, so the fates would have it that those two worked with him on the next two operas, Madama Butterfly and Tosca. And while they were well known in their own day, they're remembered today by virtue of beating Puccini's great librettists. Giacosa was a little bit older than everyone else and was a friend of Verdi and his librettist, Arrigo Boito. And Giacosa said in writing the opera, he felt that the characters were too young and he could not capture that bright and frivolous festiv festiveness that is the essence of the creation of the young. So Giacosa had a hard time coming up with the words, uh, but eventually he and Ilica satisfied Puccini. So the first performance was in Turin. What's interesting to me also is that the first performance of this opera uh, in the United States didn't take place at the Metropolitan Opera, which in the late 19th century was considered a German house. So all of Wagner's operas and the romantic German operas were performed often at the Metropolitan Opera. And believe it or not, in terms of French operas, 
the capital of the United States for French operas was not New York, but was New Orleans. So many of the operas of Massenet and Gounod and their colleagues, the late 19th century French operas, were first performed here in the U.S. in New Orleans. Well, where was La Boheme? Where did it receive its first performance in the United States? About two blocks from here, in Los Angeles. There was an itinerant opera company, and there were many itinerant opera companies. They'd get a group of folks together and get on a train and pack their stuff in the back, and they'd get off in various cities. So there was a, co a company called the Carl Rosa Company, and in 1897, they landed here in Los Angeles, stopped in L.A., and they were the first to perform Puccini's La Boheme in the United States. So given that, I've always found it interesting as a radio guy to try to find um, some early singers that performed the operas. And what, is, uh, what I found a couple of months ago was a recording of the very first Mimi. Her name was uh, Cesira Ferrani. And there's actually a recording of Madame Ferrani singing a portion of Puccini's La Boheme. Most of us have come to opera by going to performances. Uh, a lot of us have, over the past 20, 30, 40 years, listened to recordings, either LPs or, or compact discs or the like, now online and YouTube, you can find just about anything. But back when opera recordings first were created in 1900 and 1901, the sound was very difficult. And for a lot of us listening to opera recordings, some of us were introduced to these opera recordings by listening to these old scratchy records. And for some of us, it, spent, it took another 20 years to actually come back to the art form. Well, so that being said, uh, we're going to listen to Puccini's first Mimi and a portion of the aria Si Mi Chiamano Mimi. Now it is old, it is scratchy, it was an acoustic recording which was essentially an inverted megaphone that they would sing into and it would record on a shellac disc. And those old shellac discs had only about two and a half minutes on each side. So they had to speed up the tempo and they could only sing a portion of the aria that might actually last five or six minutes in the opera house. But in listening to Cesira Ferrani sing Si Mi Chiamano Mimi or a portion of it, we get from her the essence of the sound that Puccini wanted to hear from his soprano. And we have to filter it through our modern ears, but recognize that this is a soprano who is creating the essence of this young woman, sensitivity. She's shy, she's demure, and she brings a certain, I'd say, pathos to, to her aria here where she describes from her life, that while she is maybe a seamstress that doesn't have a lot happening, she looks forward to the spring and to the warmth of the spring sun.
So while the first Rodolfo, a recording of his voice, has not been captured, one of the early tenors that sang Puccini's operas, we do have a bit of, uh, of his sound. He was a young man who was making a career of it in Italy, and while he wasn't as famous as he would become, um, he wanted to be introduced to the composer Puccini. And while Puccini didn't want to listen to singers, wasn't interested in it, the young singer on a Sunday afternoon showed up at his villa and knocked on the door. And Puccini's doorman answered it and said, who are you? He says, I'm a tetter, I want to sing for the composer. And, and the, uh, the doorman said, wait a minute. And he came back and kind of like in The Wizard of Oz, he said, go away. The, uh, the, maestro doesn't, the, ma the maestro doesn't want to see you. To which Enrico Caruso wouldn't be heard to, uh, to not show up and be heard. So he walked into Puccini's musical den and Puccini said, what do you want? To which in Caruso replied, not in words, but in singing the aria Che Gelida Manina. So while he wasn't the first Rodolfo, he certainly sang many to Puccini, and he was in fact to become one of Puccini's favorite tenors. He starred in the 1910 first performance at the Metropolitan Opera of Puccini's La Fanciulla del West, and was to have a great association with the composer for the rest of his life, that is, Enrico Caruso's life. So I asked my daughter, who helped me record these, this music on the, uh, this smartphone, if she knew who Enrico Caruso was. She's a modest soprano studying voice at USC. And she said, no. <laughs> she had no, I said, well, I'm, you know, I'm opera guy. I'm the opera radio guy. And she said, I have no idea who Enrico Caruso is. And I said, that's all right. I have no idea who the singers you listen to are. So we, we kind of call it a truce. But notwithstanding that, um, I played her this, and she was duly impressed, as was the composer Puccini. <laughs> So the question is, what was Puccini? How do you put him in the sense of late 19th century Italian opera or European opera? So we can look back in time to see what was there. Some thought that Puccini wasn't really taking opera to any new space. One critic once put it, Wagner's music is better than it sounds. Puccini's sounds better than it is. 
Now, while that might have been someone's idea in 1896, it certainly isn't, the day, isn't that way today. Keep in mind that while we recognize that from the late 19th and early 20th century, there, was, there were dramatic things happening in the context of, of music evolution. There was um, Richard Strauss's all operas Zalame and Electra, which had not yet been written when Puccini wrote La Boheme, or Stravinsky's great ballets The Rite of Spring and Firebird, or anything that Scharnberg had come up with with his 12-tone system. Those had not yet been composed. So the extent to which classical music, serious music in the early 20th century took a dramatic um, turn from the late 19th century romantic music that was heard by the composers. What was in the ear of the composers, Wagner's Tristan und Parsifal, Claude Debussy had just written the prelude to the Afternoon of the Fawn, and Richard Strauss, not yet an opera composer, was doing what, uh, what many late 19th century German composers, which was to take that romanticism that Wagner created to its next large extent in his tone poems, Don Juan and Death and Transfiguration. So where does Puccini sit musically? The 20th century had not yet come along, and he, we have here Richard Strauss's tone poems, Wagner's Tristan and Parsifal. Puccini, in a sense to my ear, is more an impressionist, impressionistic, the music of Claude Debussy and, and Maurice Ravel. His music has this effervescence and creates this sense of emotional impressions that we see throughout the opera. And in fact, La Boheme is just a series of, of episodes of these young people. Claude Debussy felt that Puccini had actually captured very well the essence of 19th century French students and French young people living in Paris. And so Puccini brings that effervescence to his music and creates these very short moments that give us the impression of these young people. So where is Puccini and how does he differentiate from where opera was? Well, Wagner at the same time was writing these large dramatic operas, The Ring of the Nibelung, even Die Meistersinger von Nuremberg, Lohengrin, and Tannhäuser. These are large orchestral pieces where the singing has to overcome, in essence, the sound of the large orchestra. Then, to my mind, have the, the, the impression of being chiseled in granite. And Verdi, in his operas, would write about social, political, religious turmoil that wouldn't just last a month or two, but would be the course of 20, 30 years where someone meets one another when they're young, their families duel, they get lost, they get kidnapped, they come back together 20 years ago or after much uh, machinations of political and social efforts. So Puccini is like this grand feast. Well, Puccini, he's right there. He brings it to the surface. And if there's anything that I feel is important to keep in mind about Puccini is that he captures a moment in time in La Boheme, whereas Wagner writes these epic orchestral scores and Verdi writes these epic stories of families and social, social interaction. Puccini brings to us the certain point of life, a point of life that we've all experienced. It is that first moment where we find love 
when we're late teens, early 20s. And he captures those feelings in these four or five youngsters that we have. So it's a reminiscent of everything that we've all gone through, that energy, that absolute, I have to be there right now, that sense of the emotion turns on a moment. Did she call me back? Is she going to come tonight? Am I going to see her this weekend? That sense of, if you don't hear this sense of jealousy, loss of, of, of anxiety, um, it happens both for men and women. And Puccini captures the effervescence of that moment in this opera. And to me, it's like a bubble, a bubble floating, that first experience of love. And then it pops, and it's gone forever. And yet Puccini brings that, to us, brings that to us in this opera. It lasts over a short period of weeks. Rodolfo and Mimi meet in the first act. It's Christmas Eve. In the second act, it's later that night. In the third act, it's just about six weeks later. And they go from this absolute have to be with one another love to being jealous and looking as though they're going to break up. And Puccini doesn't only create this sense of young folks in love and the uniqueness of that and its ephemeral nature with Rodolfo and Mimi, he also creates it in Musetta and Barcello. They show, in many ways, the next chapter. After you have that urgency of initial love, you have then the quarreling and the sense of what is she doing right now and why is she flirting with that guy? So you have these two contrasting to a certain extent. It's not even contrasting, just the linear aspect of the initial love. So we come to the story, and you all know the story. In the first act, uh, Rodolfo and Marcello are, are in their freezing apartment. They decide that they'll burn the first chapter of Rodolfo's uh, manuscript. And when it goes out, Marcello says, down with the author, he doesn't write enough. That's just because there wasn't enough, um, enough fire in the fireplace. At this point, then, in runders, uh, in comes Schonard, and Schonard's the musician. And Puccini, and I, I like listening to this, he wanted to create an aria or a scene for each of his characters, and he had a very difficult time coming up with one for Schonard. But he, he landed as he did, and as we see, on one wonderful story right at the beginning. So it's almost their, their lowest point. Um, even though we have all been in the same place. We've all been young people not paying the rent, the landlord knocking on our door. In comes Chouinard, and he's got food and fuel and wine and, and excitement, and he tells the story about how he was hired by a rich Englishman to play music and to keep playing music until the Englishman's parrot died. So Chouinard hastens the death of the parrot so that he can come and be with his friends on Christmas Eve. And hearing all the commotion upstairs, the landlord, Benoit, comes up and asks for the rent, which is due. And as I say, how many of us haven't been in that same situation where we don't know where next month's rental income, rent payment is going to come from? Well, Marcello decides that he has an idea. He'll get... Uh, Benoit, the landlord, a little, well, let's say tipsy, a little liquored up. So they ply him with wine, and then they start to ask him and nudge him in the shoulders or nudge him with their elbows and saying, so what, you know, have you had any uh, great love affairs to which Benoit uh, accommodates them and describes how he has had this love affair, and he goes into great length about uh, a woman. And all of a sudden, when he gets to the moment of really showing that he has betrayed his uh, marital vows, uh, the young men uh, feign indignation and then throw them out, of course, without having paid the rent. 
So the young Bohemians say it's Christmas Eve, we don't spend it at home, let's go out to the restaurant, and they prepare to leave. Rodolfo says he has to stay behind and finish an article that he's writing. And this is where Puccini turns just high comedy, almost Rossini comedy, into absolute exquisite emotion, is that in that brief moment where there's silence and Rodolfo's in his garret alone, you hear a timid knock at the door, and you hear this woman say, scusi, excuse me. And he says, una donna, a woman. And we know with the sound of the music and with just these two words, or three words, una donna, that Puccini is going to create here the moment where love is ignited. So Mimi comes in and her candle is out. She wants a light. Now, if that isn't a metaphor for looking for love, I mean, the doors in the 1960s with come on, baby, light my fire. So this is Puccini. This is the doors picking up where, the, uh, where Puccini left off. So Rodolfo obligingly lights her candle, but she faints. And when she faints, she drops her key. They revive her. Rodolfo says, please stay behind. She says, no, I have to leave. She leaves. She goes to leave. She recognizes she doesn't have her key. And her candle goes out. So Rodolfo, who has a candle, blows his out. Now, some say that Luciano Pavarotti created that moment, but uh, it was obviously written in the text that the candle goes out. Some say it's just the wind blowing. But nevertheless, we have these two young people on the floor groping around for Mimi's key. And Rodolfo finds it. Mimi thinks she hears something. She says, have you found it? He says, no. Like, you know, even though this is an opera, it is the actual spoken word that they are, to, this, this, the young singers and the young um, Parisians are singing to one another. Um, then as they grope around, we find then that their two hands meet. And this is the first moment that love begins to take hold. And I like to look at it in the sense of there's a Sistine Chapel and the, uh, the painting on the ceiling where the Almighty is reaching out to Adam to touch him and to, to give life to Adam. Well, this is Puccini actually consummating that moment with young love and the two lovers' hands meet. And there's just that electricity, which Rodolfo then taking that, uh, the urge to tell her about him sings his aria where he says, while he may be poor, he is rich in terms of emotion and poetry, to which Mimi then replies in the demure aria, telling him about herself and her life. And then no sooner do we have these two exquisite arias that are filled with emotion and, and incipient love, we then have what some believe is, is one of Puccini's genius, one of his greatest, uh, greatest moments. And this is when they're done with their arias. We have Rodolfo outside, or excuse me, Marcello downstairs calling up to Rodolfo. Hey, Rodolfo, come along, let's go. And they get, he hears a woman's voice. And as Marcello says that Rodolfo has found his poem at last, there is this duet that begins, O suave fanchula, O beautiful woman. Rod Rodolfo is looking at Mimi, and through the window of the garret, the moonlight has hit her face and shows the brilliance, in essence, of the moon casting its light on Mimi's face. We capture the glow of love. And Puccini writes this exquisite duet uh, for the two, Mimi and Rodolfo, O suave fanchula.
So Giacomo Puccini, La Boheme was his fourth opera. The first two were, I don't want to say student pieces, but not of particular uh, significance, except to show that there was incipient brilliance, which did come out then in Manon Lescaut, his third in La Boheme, his fourth opera. Puccini lived in an estate by a, um, by a lake. He was quite the um, the guy guy. He formed a club with his friends called the Law Bohem Club, and they would go there, play cards, drink, and smoke. He liked to buy fast cars, boats. His first yacht was was called Mimi the, the First. He also, and this is, I love this story, he was one of the first owners of a BMW motorcycle. I mean, you see Puccini in that top hat and everything. Can you see him leaned over the front of a motorcycle going down some dirt road in, in Italy? Uh, he had this, this great story while writing, uh, composing La Boheme. He liked to go out hunting with his friends. So one day they were out on the lake, and they were actually across on the other side of the lake. And they were, they were in their boat. Puccini stood up with his gun in hand, and all of a sudden the police came out. And they arrested him for having a gun or a weapon without a license and for trespass. And so back in those days, you didn't cut deals, you just went to trial. So there was a trial of Puccini for not having, of Giacomo Puccini for not having a license for his weapon and trespass. And so he hired a lawyer, and his lawyer, well, came up with a good story, let's just say. And the lawyer said, yeah, Puccini was out there. He wasn't out there actually hunting or trespassing. They were looking for a summer rental. And he was using his weapon to part the weeds so that he could see the entirety of the state. To which Puccini jumped up and said, that's right. If I were hunting, my bag would have been filled and it was totally empty. And I'm a great shot. I never miss a bird. To which his friends in the back, the members of the Bohemian La Boheme Club, started to cackle because they knew he couldn't hit the broadside of a barn with, a, with his shot. Of course, Puccini was acquitted in a certain sense, much to the dismay of his publisher, who would have rather had Puccini uh, incarcerated for a short period of time so that he could finish composing the opera. And one small anecdote and footnote to that is the woman, the estate, the Marchesa who owned the estate across the lake became good friends with Puccini throughout all of this, and he actually dedicated La Boheme to her. Now, Puccini was a man who lived a big life. And as it relates to love affairs, as I say, he had many, often, and he was always open to the opportunity. <laughs> and while that may seem a bit uh, callous to his, uh, to his family and his wife, to whom he remained very loyal throughout his life, and it was, and it was a part of some consternation uh, and on ongoing uh, concern between uh, Puccini and his wife, Elvira, he once wrote her, all art of artists in relationship to his many varied love affairs, all artists cultivate these little gardens in order to delude themselves into thinking that they are not finished and old and torn by strife. So while we read those with a certain sense of some man trying to justify his, his wanderings, it was that feeling of Puccini and his, uh, his need to essentially experience 
a sense of ongoing romance that gets brought into his operas. And in the second act, we have probably one of the most exquisite 18 minutes of opera that were ever composed. Keep in mind that there are seven principles. There's Mimi, Rodolfo, Marcello, uh, Musetta, Alcindoro, the old guy, and Schonard in Colline. They're all there, and Puccini has something to write for each of them. But there's also a chorus of people celebrating at the Café Café Momus and in the Latin Quarter on Christmas Eve. There's a children's choir. There's the character Parpignol who comes in and he's selling toys. He's a vendor. And at the end of the act, if it wasn't enough to have a large orchestra, these principals and these choruses all on stage, he brings an onstage band playing that marches everyone off at the end. So to have Puccini, uh, to criticize him as not having the skill of Wagner or Verdi or some of the other composers is actually a fallacy because the way in which he allows each of these elements to come into the magic that is the second act uh, is absolutely amazing. And to me, probably the highlight of the second act, and it is for so many of us, is the interaction between Musetta and Marcello. So while we have Rodolfo and Mimi, they're early stages, early moments of love. He buys her a bonnet and they sit down. It is really the big life Musetta, bigger than life, this brash woman who knows what she wants coming in into the second act. She's had an affair where her boyfriend is Marcello, but they're busted up at the moment. So he's trying to ignore her. She's trying to get his attention. She's been brought in on the arm of this older guy, Alcindoro, who's essentially her date for the night. Well, when I was a young guy, uh, as a student, I'd, uh, in, the, in my college, I'd often have opera nights, and I'd invite all of the, uh, <clears throat> let's just say, young women that I knew to come and listen to opera. And I had La Boheme one night. I said, so come to my apartment on Friday night. We'll listen to La Boheme. I sort of fashioned myself either Rodolfo or Marcello. At this point in my life, I realize I'm more Alcindoro. <laughs> Picking up the check at the end of the night. <laughs> So thank you for coming tonight to listen to Alcindoro. In any event, um, Puccini writes this absolutely exquisite. After Musetta goes through her famous waltz song, she uh, she decides she needs to get rid of Alcindoro. So she feigns that her shoes are too tight and she screams, sending him off, scurrying off to find either a new pair or to repair the ones that she has as Musetta falls into the arms of the now wayward Marcello who's come around. And while he falls she falls into his arms. She says, Marcello, and he says, Sirena, the siren. And it's almost as though Marcello knows that his boat is going to crash against the shore any moment. Here is that moment from the second act. <laughs>
So after the exuberance of the, uh, the love forming and the interaction of Christmas Eve at the Cafe Momos, we come to the third act, which to many of us is the absolute genius of Puccini, even though the duets and the excitement of the first two acts uh, are certainly melodically and, uh, and, and wonderful. You don't know whether you're at a comedy or a tragedy, and yet we, we heard early in the first act where Mimi faints because she's coughing, that is a portent of what's to come. And in the third act, uh, we have, we're now six, we, essentially six weeks later in early February, and Mimi, in the middle of winter, has come to the tavern where Marcello is working and Musetta is singing, and she's looking for Rodolfo. And Puccini sets this, this musical scene that is just emotionally gripping from almost the very first moment that Mimi comes onto stage. Now we hear the music of the characters. We'll hear Musetta in the tavern carrying on. We'll hear when Mimi comes on stage a, a recapitulation of her, um, her aria. And we have new, some new scenes and some new music in the, in the third act. But as Leonard Bernstein says, as it relates to the third act, Puccini does what in this, this is what music does to expand mere drama into opera. So Mimi comes looking for Rodolfo because he's left her, because he's insanely jealous, thinking that she's having an affair and carrying on with someone else. This is, this is really... This has really hurt Mimi greatly. Rodolfo is angry and has stormed out. So when Marcello uh, comes out, she pours out the emotion to Marcello in just exquisite, um, amazing, heart-wrenching music. And Marcello is very supportive, uh, wants her to come in and see Rodolfo. She says no. But as soon as this happens, Rodolfo comes out. Puccini tries to create a bit of, of lightness when Marcello comes out. But Mar excuse me, when Rodolfo comes out of the tavern, but Marcello says, so what's going on? Mimi has hidden. Rodolfo doesn't know that she's there. Marcello says, what's going on to Rodolfo? Why aren't you with Mimi? And he says that Mimi's a flirt. She's carrying on with someone else, and she's just not true to me, to which Marcello questions him. And while he continues to, well, let's just say deride Mimi for a few moments, and Marcello questions that, Rodolfo eventually says that, uh, that Mimi is, is desperately ill and he doesn't know what to do. Now what's interesting is that Mimi hears this coming from Rodolfo, she thinking that he's left her because she's jealous, we find out that Rodolfo has left her because he doesn't know how to handle her illness. And in revealing the illness to Marcello, Mimi is hearing that she's probably in worse shape than she thought. And we have Marcello, who is the loyal friend really to both of them. And Puccini writes this trio, which is the essence of the opera, and in many ways is the brilliance of the composer. Here is is that moment from the second act.
s'accanta e sorride e rimorso massale becca giunge il fadale mal che l'uccide sometimes described as the winter of the soul. So they decide that they will break up, that is, Rodolfo and Mimi, but they will at least stay together until the spring. And the second act comes to a close as Marcello and Musetta resume the quarrel that is the ongoing um, story of their relationship. So we begin the fourth act. And we begin the fourth act. It is now early autumn. So it's now six months later, five or six months later. And Rodolfo and Marcello are back where they started in the, their garret, and neither of the guys can, can do what they're supposed to. Mar- Rodolfo can't, can't write, and Marcello can't paint. And they sing this duet, uh, O Mimi, Tu Piu Non Torni, where they, they're really nostalgic for the women that have, uh, that have left them, or that they have left. But the friends come in again, not to the same exuberance of the first act. In fact, uh, Schonard just shows up with a couple of herring. But the exuberance gets, gets going, and they dance around. And at the, right at the moment of the greatest excitement of the second act, there's just this abrupt entrance of Musetta. She, she rushes in. Puccini creates it musically with a, with a great stunning moment. Musetta said, Mimi's outside. She's dying. She can't make it in. Rodolfo goes out to get her and brings her in. And they sing this absolute heart-wrenching fourth act where Rodolfo and Mimi are together. Placido Domingo said, um, Puccini is genius, using the power of his music to make love at first sight completely believable in act one. And he just says, this is Domingo, I defy even the most cynical listener not to be touched by Mimi's reminiscing and by their friend's concern for her in the fourth act. Puccini wrote that the whole of the fourth act is constructed out of musical reminiscences. So the music that we've heard in the first three acts will show up again briefly, not necessarily in the same ways that Wagner uses psychological effects for light motifs, but in essence as fingerprints of the story that we have just listened to. So Puccini will construct much of the fourth act from the same music text. We have then Mimi and Rodolfo together. They sing their final duet, and Mimi sings to him, sings to Rodolfo, I love you. You're all my life.
So as you go in this evening, remember your first love and the feelings that you had and that experience as Puccini brings it to life once again. Thank you so much. You've been listening to L.A. Opera's Behind the Curtain. Thanks, and see you at the opera. If you've enjoyed listening to L.A. Opera's Behind the Curtain, you'll want to make sure you don't miss an episode. Please subscribe and leave a rating or review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen. Don't forget to share this with your friends on Twitter and Facebook, and we'll see you at the opera.